Right, well, I'm going to start by praying, uh, mostly because I'm utterly terrified, if I'm honest with you. I can't work out whether this or flying is more scary, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty evenly matched, to be honest. Yeah, so Lord, I thank you that none of us are here by accident this morning. I thank you that you've chosen each one of us to be here and to be here for a purpose. And I thank you that you know all of us, you know where our lives are at, you know where we're going, and you know what's going on. And I just pray, Father, that as I speak this morning, that it wouldn't be my words, that it would be your words, Father, that you would speak through me, that you would cut to the marrow of people's bones where they need cutting to, and that your word would go forth this morning. Amen. All right, well, last Monday, I woke up at 6.04 a.m., like the alarm does every week or every day to me, and I was convinced it was Saturday. But after a little bit of musing in my sleepy state, I suddenly remembered it was Sunday, and I was absolutely gutted because, again, I had to get up because I was on PA. But no, it wasn't, it wasn't Sunday, and it wasn't Saturday. It was actually Monday, and I was actually annoyed in that moment. It was Monday again. So I was thinking, why does the grind never ease off? I can't be bothered with work. Why can't life just be more like a holiday, God? So we're going to look at Psalm 95 this morning. It says this, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come let, us bow down be- Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now when I first read this psalm, it seemed weird to me. I was looking for a psalm that was encouraging and uplifting, that just had a natural flow that would encourage me just by reading it. And this one starts off really well, but then seems to deliver an untimely punch at the end, and it didn't really seem to fit. To me, it was much like when you're driving sometimes. Now, for me, driving isn't a kind of necessity. Driving's a pleasure, and I like it to be fun. So uh, occasionally, I'll come off of roundabouts, and I'll be in third gear, and you just boot it. And you watch the revs go up, and you're about to stick the car into fourth and keep going past the rest of the traffic. But you don't select fourth. You knock it into second, and the engine just goes nuts and tries to rip itself out. And this is how I felt when I read this psalm. I was like, what on earth is that all about, God? Why is there this weird bit of nonsense at the end? So actually, what is going on here? See, this psalm was written as a call to worship, and it was usually spoken by the priest. And after I'd read it a couple of times, bearing this in mind, the penny suddenly dropped. 
there are actually two voices here. One is the voice of the author, and the other is God's voice being spoken by the author on behalf of God, who is also quoting something God had said to a previous group of people. I'm just going to read it again quickly. It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Right, so what is this all about? What is the hardening of hearts at Meribah? You see, the final part of this psalm, the awkward gear change bit, is referring to a time when God had rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt through Moses. God had set them free after performing a host of miracles, including sending a plague of locusts on Egypt, turning the river Nile to blood, and parting the Red Sea to give dry ground so the Israelites could cross the sea into the desert beyond, fleeing Pharaoh's army. God then fed the Israelites in the desert daily by bringing them manna from heaven. And there's an account in Exodus 15 where the Israelite community were grumbling at Moses because the water where they were was bitter. So God provided another miracle where Moses had to throw a piece of wood into the water and it became sweet. God was clearly looking after his people. And at the time in this quote, sorry, at the time this quote in Psalm 95 was taken, the Israelites find themselves in a new location called Rephidim, having left the sweet water behind, and this is what the people say. In Exodus 17, verse 1 to 7, it says, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin. Travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded, they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And I, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. 
So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called that place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? See, this is what the hardening of hearts at Meribah was all about. The people were clearly tired and weary of traveling all the time, fed up with their daily grind. And it seems that time and time again, the people argued with Moses, doubted God, and always, doubted that God was always with them, and they grumbled. And in fact, in just the first two stories after the Israelites had celebrated their freedom from Egypt, the word grumbled or grumbling is used nine times to describe them. So for me, knowing this completely changes that passage. Because it reveals to me that there isn't a problem with the passage, there isn't an awkward gear change, but rather it's likely that this psalm is being directed at, a, at an audience with problems. A group of people who are going through struggles, possibly weary of their daily grind, and maybe doubting God, grumbling, and they don't particularly want to praise God. You know, I don't know about you, but there are many times that I don't want to praise God. Things happen in life and I grumble at God, doubting his ability to change things and whinging about how my situation is unfair. And when I think about it, it's actually quite embarrassing how much I might whinge or grumble about. For example, a few weeks ago, it was too hot to sleep and I was wishing it was cooler. Then it's raining and I'm wishing the sun would come back. And a few weeks after having four new tires put on the van, I got my second puncture in a month, which couldn't be repaired and had to be replaced. I was asking God, what's the point of having four new tires? What is the point? Then the car broke down and had to be towed to the garage. Then sometimes there's too much work to do and I can't keep up with it and I'm exhausted. And at other times it almost grinds to a halt and I wonder if God's actually going to provide or not. And then driving to New Day, we're going up there to collect the tents and the service light flashes up on the van dashboard. And this was two weeks after it had just been serviced. So what is that all about? And now the summer is almost over. Soon it will be freezing and miserable. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> See, the school term is about to start again and the usual 6.04 daily grind continues. And I find myself getting weary, fed up and burdened by the constant aggravation of life. And the list of things that I grumble or whinge about may actually be genuine things. Yes, it is annoying buying six tyres for the price of four, long way around, four for the price of six. But in comparison to who God is, it's really not a big deal. You see, this psalm and this call to praise is directed at me and possibly at you as well, if you ever feel like I do. This psalm is pleading with me to praise God for who he is, to understand my position before God, and to take my eyes off the nonsense of life. So let's look at who God is according to Psalm 95. Right at the very beginning in verse 1, it says that God is the rock of our salvation. So not only does this mean that our salvation is absolutely secure when we die and therefore puts our temporary problems into perspective, but it also means that God, being the rock himself, is utterly consistent in our day-to-day -day lives. 
See, when I was a child, we had goldfish, and in their tank was a large red rock. And I have this large red rock with me. There's a large red rock, covered in old scabby fish stuff. But, uh, see, when I was about 10 years old, the fish that lived with this rock were rehomed, and this rock found its way into my parents' garden. And the thing is, that rock has now spent 26 years in exactly the same position in my parents' garden through hot sun, torrential rain, freezing ice, and storms. Yet the rock is absolutely identical to the time when it was in the fish tank. And God is like this. God never changes. God makes promises in his word to sustain us. He also says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And actually, there's a story about him never leaving us that God prompted me with, that growing up, whenever there was something strange going on in life, for example, we were going on holiday, which wasn't normal day-to-day life, I would find something that was a constant within that environment. And for whatever reason, when we would go on holiday, my constant thing was to get a little wooden peg or one of my sister's hair clips and actually clip it to the end of the exhaust pipe on my dad's car. And we would drive all the way to Wales, and all the time in my brain, I knew that wherever we were and whatever was going on, that poor little peg was stuck on the end of the exhaust pipe, getting covered in whatever was coming out of the car. And uh, that trend kind of carried on through life. So I found myself at the point where I was leaving my uh, sort of paid employment and going self-employed. And I remember my last lunch break, sitting on some scaffold boards, kind of just running my hand through the gravel driveway. And there was one little tiny stone in there that just caught my eye. I can't remember why. It was just an interesting shape. And I thought, I like that stone. I'm going to keep that stone and put that stone on the dashboard of the van. Then wherever I'm working and whatever I'm doing, that stone is with me. So if it's a bad day, I can look at that stone and remember where I was before. And in an instant, it suddenly dawned on me, how stupid is that? I've got a God who is with me all the time, who will never leave me or forsake me, and I'm putting my stone, my stone, my trust in this stupid little bit of gravel, when actually I've got the rock who is with me all of the time, who will never leave me or forsake me. Another one of his promises to us is that he never sleeps or slumbers. He never grows weary or tired. He provides for us all of the time. His grace is new every morning. And even if things don't seem to be going how we would like them to, God works all things for us for good. And these promises are utterly rock solid, regardless of whatever else is going on in life. Then in verse 3 to 5, it says, For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And just out of curiosity, I asked Google how many gods are currently worshipped today. And I don't take this figure too seriously, but it came back with approximately 320 million different gods. But... I figured the exact number is kind of irrelevant because regardless of how many gods there are, 
the Lord, our God, is the great king who is above all of them. And in his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountains are his, and the sea is his, and he made the dry land. In July this year, I read a news story that said that scientists had discovered a quadrillion tons of diamonds hidden in the earth. And they said that they are, ac- they are impossible to access, which some people might think is unfortunate, but they are impossible to access. But if they were accessible, their value would be enough to bankrupt the planet. And in Psalm 95, verse 4, it just casually says, In his hands are the depths of the earth. So our God just decided for no apparent reason that he wanted to put a quadrillion tons of the most valuable thing on the planet right down deep in the center of the earth just because he's God and he can and is his. Because you see, God owns everything far more than I can possibly imagine. So I have no need to doubt his ability to provide for me or sustain me or give me energy. And if he can provide water out of a rock for the Israelites, he has enough resources to provide for me in any way he chooses. And in verse 6, it says, For he is our God. And put slightly differently, he is my God and he is your God. This means he is very personal. He's not just the God who helps all the Christian celebrities. He's not just God to the good people. His power and willingness to act in our lives isn't just available to people that live on the edge serving God in China or Africa. He is my God too. He is Martin's God. This means he is with me when my van gets yet another flat tire. He is with me when I'm towing the car behind the van desperately hoping no one crashes into us while I slowly negotiate junctions. He is with me at 6 a.m. on a Monday morning when I wake up convinced it must be Saturday. And he is my God through the difficulties and mundane parts of everyday life. And he is my God despite my imperfections, ready to meet with me and ready ready and willing to act on my behalf in my daily life. And he is your God So that's a brief look at who God is in this psalm. But according to Psalm 95, who am I? In verse 7, it says, And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. This is who I am. I am a sheep under God's care, nothing more and nothing less. See, a sheep is a pretty helpless animal, really. It has no sharp teeth to defend itself. It can't run away from its predators. It has almost no ability to think for itself. And when it tries to, it ends up in a ditch or stuck in a wire fence. See, a sheep's role in life and the sheep's safest place to be is following its shepherd. And that doesn't mean that I should switch my brain off and become a zombie. But it does mean that in life, I don't need to be a rock. I don't need to try and be the great God of my own life. I don't need to amass great wealth and create my own security. And I don't need to try and hold everything together because those are all God's job. My role is to stop grumbling 
and trust in God daily, praising him for who he is through whatever life sends my way. So Psalm 95 tells us how we shouldn't be grumbling and faithless. It tells us what we should be doing, praising God. And it tells us why we should praise God. But does it tell us how? How do we live that life? Now the textbook answer is through Jesus. But he's not in this psalm, is he? See, I've been told that every passage in the Bible has Jesus in it somewhere. So I was determined to find him. And a bit like playing Where's Wally, I eventually found Jesus. And he's here. He's in verse 7. It says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. See, Jesus is in the and. Without and in that phrase, it would only say, For he is our God. There would be no people of his pasture. There would be no flock under his care without the and, without Jesus. All you would have is God in all his greatness and a group of grumbling people who don't know God and who have no way of ever knowing him. But there is an and, there is Jesus. And because Jesus has already lived the perfect life, he has lived a life of toil at work, he has got up at 6 a.m. in the morning on a Monday, he has been completely exhausted, He has been absolutely flat broke without a penny to his name, and he has experienced real pain, yet he didn't grumble. Instead, he remained completely faithful to God, trusting and praising his Father, even to the point that he was killed on the cross. And in doing this, in living the life that you or I could not live, he paid the price that you or I could not pay. He created, he credited, his perfect record to you and to me, which makes it possible to step away from a life of grumbling and into a life under the protection and provision of God. He made a way for you and me to become part of the people of his pasture and part of the flock under his care. We just have to to surrender to him and put our trust in him. And just as I come to end in a minute, in the very last line of this psalm, when God is speaking about the grumbling Israelites, he makes a pretty scary oath, saying, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. They shall never enter my rest. Now this is fairly frightening, because I know full well that even though I am part of people of God, and I am part of his pasture, and I have put my trust in him, and I am saved and secure, yet my heart still goes astray. I still find myself doubting God, and there are times I blatantly rebel against God, and I do end up grumbling. So does God make this declaration over me? Is it the case that I will never enter God's rest? Well, no. Because this is something that Jesus dealt with on the cross. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus gives us the antidote to God's anger at our rebellious and grumbling hearts. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See, this is something that Jesus won for us on the cross. 
If you put your trust in Jesus, that his perfect life and death have paid the price for all your sin, then when God looks at you and looks at me, he no longer sees our rebellious, grumbling hearts. Instead, he sees Jesus' perfect life credited to us. And when we come to Jesus as our saviour and put our trust in him through the everyday details of life, we can find rest. And in doing so, find the freedom to praise God for who he is, even at 6.04 on a Monday morning. I'm just going to read this psalm to end, and then I'll hand back to Quince. Once again, it says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care.